Support for Starting Small comes from Human Scale, the leading designer and manufacturer of high-performance ergonomic products that help create a healthier work life. All of the products from chairs to standing desk and more are comfortable, easy to use, and sustainable, and great for either the office or the work from home environment. With an increase in shifting workplaces, comfort can be especially hard to find. As I run the podcast, I'm in front of my desk for hours a day, from scheduling, researching, interviewing, and more. Human Scale allows me to remain productive without the consequence of body stress to follow. Make sure to check out Human Scale at humanscale.com and use code STARTINGSMALL at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. That's code STARTINGSMALL at humanscale.com and enjoy the episode. Hello and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Sam Rockwell, founder of Happy Foodie, making healthy eating effortless by bringing quality chef-inspired meals to the freezer aisle. First starting with only waffles with Waffle Waffle, they now offer breakfast, lunch and dinner, appetizers, and snacks. Building a strong reputation for frozen foods, they were able to acquire a recent partnership with Barstool, creating the One Bite Frozen Pizza. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Sam Rockwell of Happy Foodie. Sam, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Cameron. It's good to be here. Of course. So I'd like to start out with your upbringing. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in uh, northern New Jersey, suburb to New York City, and uh, my childhood was great. Very supportive family, um, very supportive parents. And when I talk about supportive, I don't just mean from a financial standpoint. Mm -hmm. I mean from a motivational standpoint, from an emotional standpoint. Um, And I think that longer term in my life, that has led me to this place where I've had and been afforded the opportunities to grow in business. Mm. Uh, and again, it's not just a financial upbringing that they've yeah. provided me with. It is that push to do more and that encouragement that you can go out and do your own thing. And if you fail, you'll be okay. But at the same time, go do something special. For sure. So as we'll get into in the interview, um, right out of college, you're you're really a, a full going entrepreneur. I'm curious, what did your parents kind of do if they had an inspiration on this? Yeah, for sure. Uh, My dad's a serial entrepreneur. He's not in the food space, but whether it's widgets or waffles, it's business. Yeah. And I think at the beginning, when you're at the beginning of this journey, which we'll we'll call it a sprint and a marathon, um, the guidance and advice can be very broad. Uh, whether you're in a secure the security industry, which my father's in security, or you're in the automobile industry, or you're in consumer products, it's business. Yeah. So your guidance is high level, but it but it's actually instrumental. Um, he played a very significant role in the beginning, but as our business has grown and evolved, finding mentors and finding people that can surround me and surround us that can be more poignant in their guidance is has been fundamental very specific Mm. guidance where i like to bring in you know our 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 investors and my mentors i try to find people whose collective yesterdays are my tomorrows Mm. and so while again basic business knowledge in any industry is really important and can help from the highest level you need some industry specific guidance to say hey i made this mistake or i hit that wall make a left or make a right yeah for sure so 
you went on to study at the University University of Wisconsin Madison in two thousand six. Uh, what did you yes. study there then? So uh, undergraduate business degree, uh, okay. risk management and insurance was was my major, which I think has been a a, a good a good base for me to think about business and to assess opportunity as well as the risk associated with it. It's not just insurance, which is just a form of risk management. It's yeah. more more or less enterprise risk management, which that's ultimately what business is, is managing risks and for sure. leaning into certain areas where there's opportunity. For sure. Um, yeah. With your time there, were you involved with any athletics or clubs? Yeah, so I played um, club soccer. I, I originally okay. went there to play soccer. Okay. Um, and then you start to realize that uh, while I have a passion for soccer and still play, yeah, that's not what's going to fuel the rest of your life. And I for thought sure. to myself early on that uh, what's in between my ears is going to take me a lot farther than my legs. Yeah. Um, so that's where I started to pivot and put my focus at least professionally into business. Mm. So right around this time, you're beginning your own ventures and Waffle Waffle becomes the thing. I'm curious then, what inspired you to overall enter the food industry, saying your father didn't come from it prior? Well, um, I'm a really good consumer. And yeah. so there, if it's a sweet, if it's a food product that I like, I am a loyal customer. And yeah. I saw somebody selling waffles in a ski mountain. And while it smelled amazing, it tasted amazing. The thing that really got me was that 30 people would line up in 20 degree weather. And yeah. if you have more people than degrees temperature, it's what's going on here. Something, something special is happening. Yeah. And the ski mountains are very seasonal businesses, winter, December yeah. to March. What if we took that concept to a non-seasonal marketplace, a big city, New York, Chicago, LA, Miami, mm. maybe it can last. And, and that, that 30 person line can become a 40 person line, 365 days a year. Yeah. Being an undergraduate business student, um, I think that teaches you personally how to read. Mm. It doesn't necessarily teach you how to understand. You don't understand but you need to know yeah. how to read in order to understand. Yeah. And so knowing how to read, I wanted to dive into business. And this is 2009, which is kind of the height of the recession. Mm. And uh, Cameron, you're, you're a business student. There yeah. are a lot of, lot of fellow students that we had or have that try to impress recruiters. For sure. I noticed uh, a lot of them walking around with financial times just to impress the recruiter when he or she walked into the interview. It's like, <laughs> that person doesn't read the Financial Times. But nonetheless, like, I was like, listen, I do want to, I would bet on myself yeah. in any circumstance. And so if I'm going to bet on myself, I'd like to start my own thing. I want to build a floor, not a ceiling. Yeah. And um, again, not sure what I wanted to do, but knowing that I have a passion for food, love to eat food. I'm a good consumer. For sure. It made sense. And I wanted to take this concept, bring it to New York City. I talked to my dad, who's a serial entrepreneur, and his advice to me was simple. Sounds good, just do it. Mm. Stop talking about it, just do it. He said, so many people get hung up in this notion of what I should do, how I'm going to do it, what's my Excel spreadsheet look like, which don't yeah. get me wrong, being measured is important. 
for sure. But the hardest part of the journey is getting started. So just yeah. go. And that's what we ended up doing is like, I started to look at, at, at real estate in New York City. And again, height of the recession. So it's a tough time. Yeah. And what I learned very quickly is that real property is real expensive. Yeah. And if you need the better portion of a half a million to a million dollars, could be a little bit less, could be more, just for the right to cut the ribbon, to then yeah. prove concept, that's a big ask. And I didn't have that type of money as a college student. I wasn't going to go to people that I'm close with to yeah. raise that type of money on a concept that's unproven. Mm. And so my, my thought process was, well, I know how to read, right? Because I'm going to undergraduate business school, managerial accounting. How do we build our business around a variable costing model? Mm. If I can make these waffles and then subsequently sell these waffles, I might not make a lot of money per waffle, but any waffle I sell, I'm making money instead of paying for the right to be in business mm. by upholding this massive um, real property investment, which is significant overhead. Yeah. Uh, and so that's kind of how we pivoted into becoming a manufacturer. And I use air quotations for that because at the time that meant one waffle iron and me and Justin, <laughs> who's my co-founding partner, making it out of our family's kitchen. Um, wow. Don't tell anybody yeah. that that's how we sold our first waffles, but <laughs> that's how we got started. And it scaled from there. That's amazing. So with these first waffles you're making then, where did you look for sourcing like ingredients and where did that come from I'm curious uh, well so at first it was very simple i think it was the baking aisle in our local grocery store okay um, <laughs> from there we graduated to restaurant depot which was industrial sized yeah but after that and i and i say that seriously but also in jest because that's just how you get going For and sure. the difference of a penny or two pennies when you're doing a hundred waffles in a day is not that significant. When you're doing a million waffles a week, it becomes very significant. Yeah. Um, our growth came again organically. And it was as we built out some scale, it was at a waffle iron, at a person, at a waffle iron, at a person. Mm. Well, that's great. So you can produce more units per day, yeah. but you don't actually recognize any additional economies of scale. You're just replicating your process. And yeah. so there became a point in time, a crossover point where we needed to make some sort of investment into a manufacturing line where instead of making a thousand waffles in a day across call it 15 hourly employees, we could make 1200 waffles in an hour with mm. one employee. And then you yeah. start to recognize additional scale capabilities as well as economies of those scale capabilities. Mm. And that's ultimately what parlayed us and leveraged us into a place where we could support bigger retailers, build yeah. out a brand and ultimately cross category lines to become more than just a, a waffle business. Yeah. So I'm curious, logistically, <clears throat> when you're making these waffles, what does the process look like from the creation of the waffle to freezing and distributing? Like, how, do, how does that look? Well, so, so now whether it's a waffle or one of our meals or a frozen pizza, which under Happy Foodie, we do all of these things. It's yeah. very similar in process. Yeah. Um, R&D is a critical component of this process, but we'll call it the innovation process because it is way more encompassing than just research and development. That is a step in the process. Yeah. We start with data, analytics, trends, 
uh, what the market and consumers are looking for, ingredients. Mm -hmm. From there, it goes into R&D, and we try to formulate and create products that, A, match what the brand identity and yeah. fall in line with that, and B, are of proper value to the consumer and viable within our manufacturing capabilities. From mm -hmm. there, the, the we'll call it the commercialization of it, whether, again, it's a waffle or a meal or a pizza, is, yeah. is the same. You start to take these benchtop recipes and expand them into, if we're using waffles as the example, how mm -hmm. we can produce 80,000 yeah. at a time instead of 80 mm. at a time. And so we do things or attempt to do things in the most automated way possible. For Unfortunately, sure. the, the cost of human labor has become ever more cumbersome yeah. to, to businesses. And those ultimately make their way into product costs and the consumer has to pay for it. And for it's sure. a competitive marketplace. And so with the waffles, it's mix all the ingredients together and they are then segmented and divided into portion controlled pieces of dough. Mm -hmm. And then they run through an automatic waffle baking line, go into an ambient cooling and then into a you know, quick deep freeze. And then they go into packaging, whether it's into an individual wrap, then into a box or whatever the finished format is. Yeah. Same thing for a meal. So yeah, Branching off in 2018, then, um, as you're talking with the new meals, where Waffle Waffle, this is a segment of Waffle Waffle. And Happy Foodie, is this when you introduced the new meals, is when you introduced Happy Foodie? Yeah. So what happened was, is that come 2017, okay. uh, 2016, 2017, a lot of the quick service restaurants, namely McDonald's, went to all-day breakfast. Yeah. And all-day breakfast made breakfast items permissible north of 10 a.m. Yeah. And consumers very much driven by convenience, quality, as well as the ability to eat or consume something in route, whether it's to work or to school. Yeah. And we started to take our waffles and find a way to create sandwiches with them. Sweet and savory was a hot, very hot trend. Sausage, egg, and cheese on a, on a buttery maple waffle. Pretty good combination. Chicken yeah. and waffles becoming very popular. So we started to create these sandwich handhelds so that people could eat breakfast items either during breakfast times or lunch or even dinner times. And yeah. very easy to carry them and eat them up. It's a super convenient product. Because of that, we realized that our capabilities expanded outside of the waffle iron. Mm. So how do we take these capabilities and marry them into products that grow outside. Mm -hmm. And what is it that we really care about? And the yeah. truth of the matter is, is that our whole mission is accessibility, right? How do we create yeah. access to something that's a great food product that you do not normally have the ability to get? And the waffle, for example, you have to go over to Europe to get it, or you had to be skiing to get it. Yeah. We wanted to make this thing that is a great product accessible. And that means available, at the right price point of value to a consumer, those types of things. And now if we take that and expand outside of the waffles, what does accessibility mean? Well, first mm -hmm. and foremost, we certainly care about lifestyle diets and trends, yeah. eating clean, eating well, keto meals, plant-based meals, gluten-free meals. Eating should never just be an obligation. 
Yeah. It should be something that you look forward to. Like I said, I'm a big time consumer. I'm eating breakfast talking about what we're going to do for dinner. Yeah. We're eating dinner talking about what we're going to do for breakfast. <laughs> and so if you're on these lifestyle diets, food should be good still. You should still look forward to that occasion. For so sure. that's one. How do we make great food accessible to folks that are on these strict diets? Mm. Two is price point. We yeah. really try to keep the most competitive price point and create value for the consumer. Um, we are in this environment now where through social media, everyone has access to the food network and everybody has yeah. access to food blogs and Instagrams. And we know what great food is. Well, yeah. great food should be available to all, even if you can't go to that fancy restaurant. For sure. Which parlays into the next point is that sometimes the fancy restaurants are very expensive. Yeah. Well, great food shouldn't be only for the rich and famous. Great for food sure. should be available and accessible to all. And then last but certainly not least, geographic territory is that not all of us live within a close proximity walking distance or driving distance to those great restaurants, even if they're accessible from a value standpoint. So how do we create something that can be replicated, duplicated, and expanded out to the market so that whether you live in Indiana, in New Jersey, in California, or Kansas, you can have a great meal? And that's really what drove Happy Foodie into, yeah. one, what, it's, what the brand represents, and two, where all of the innovation derives from. Mm. Presuming that much of your business is mainly retail, um, I'm mm -hmm. curious, kind of what um, percentages would you say is retail and D to C <clears throat> and talking about accessibility, like D to C, especially what does that mean for the frozen food business? So direct to consumer is something that we have just started to dive into this year. And I okay. think that the pandemic made it a more available option in frozen yeah. foods, but it still is uh, very challenging to deliver value. Sure. And the reason being is because in order to pack a frozen meal to ship out to a consumer anywhere that buys it directly from us, you have to have a cooler, dry ice, and then rely upon a common carrier like FedEx or UPS or DHL. Yeah. And you're subject to their performance records. Mm. Uh, if they're delayed and the food spoils, well, that's our loss. That's not FedEx or UPS's loss. And so it yeah. becomes somewhat challenging. Separately is... How do you create bundle sizes that ultimately translate into a value proposition for the consumer? For yeah. sure, direct-to-consumer is much more convenient for the consumer, but there's a cost with that. And yeah. if you're available in every Walmart in the country, like our products are, well, you can go, for example, our um, Happy Foodie One Bite Barstool Pizza yeah. is available in every single Walmart in the country. You can go to Walmart and buy it for $6.48. If you were to buy it online, we were talking about almost $11 a pizza. Yeah. Um, and so it's how do you bundle things so it's not out of reach from a value standpoint, but no matter what, it's going to be expensive. Yeah. And it's a, it's a challenge to try and communicate that to the consumer, but also make it available for sure. to the consumer. So it's still a learning game. And I would say mm -hmm. that, uh, the vast majority of our business is still retail while we yeah. work to perfect the value proposition direct to consumer. I hope you guys are enjoying this episode so far around Sam's entrepreneurial journey. I'd like to pause and say thank you to this episode's mid-break sponsor, American Giant. Offering high quality and comfortable clothing, I highly recommend American Giant. Especially being from the Midwest, their clothing and material is insulated so well that you don't need to have bulky clothing. 
So make sure to check them out for yourself at americanslashgiant.com and enjoy the rest of the episode. Mentioning in that partnership then, I, I kind of want to move into uh, the Sparsdale partnership that recently <clears throat> happened. So how did the conversation happen about that? And when would you say t- time period, if you're allowed to share? Um, sure. In, in the, to go into as much detail as, as I can, for is sure. that our relationship with Barstool predates the pandemic. Okay. And prior to the pandemic, I think not just at Barstool with Dave Portnoy, but prior to the pandemic for all of us consumers, frozen food was not the go-to choice. Yeah. The pandemic brought us home and made us think about, well, what's convenient, easy, affordable, but also of good quality. And the freezer is actually the best way to have a product, have an extended shelf life without adding preservatives and using quality ingredients. For sure. And connecting with Barstool prior to the pandemic about some of these benefits, uh, married then with the demand into the freezer driven by the pandemic, which Mm -hmm. then layered on top of Dave doing frozen pizza reviews, led to this enormous market opportunity, I think, for us together. And what Barstool brings to the table is obviously the reach, the audience, um, as well as Dave being the pizza guy. He knows all of the best attributes about pizza. He's tried so many of them. And so he can say, this is the crust. This is the sauce. This is the cheese. And for us, we are a consumer products company that has enough of a a vertical integration and enough infrastructure to Mm -hmm. bring big programs to life and big products to life. The big boys move very slowly, which I see as an advantage to us. They're very calculated and deliberate, but yeah. their innovation timelines are 36 to 48 months. Mm. The little guys, which, you know, in, in order to get to our position, you have to start small, but the little guys sure. aren't able to support program launches that are national necessarily. Yeah. So for us, we're not the big guy. We move a lot quicker and we're a lot more flexible and certainly can have the influence and collaboration with a Dave Portnoy. But we're not the small guys because we can actually support national launches and be able to produce for the Walmarts of the world, the Kroger's of the world, the Targets of the world, the Costco's of the world and beyond. And so I think that the partnership kind of worked very well together Mm. because this is Dave's pizza. He did work with our R&D team to create it. And our team is experienced enough and our infrastructure is profound enough that we can actually deliver this product and continue to produce it. Yeah. So mentioning the involvement there, I'm, I'm curious, what did the prototyping process look like for creating this pizza with your R&D and Dave? Yep. So it started with a bunch of due diligence, understanding yeah. Dave's preferences before presenting him with anything. So you kind of yeah. narrow the options ahead of time. But from there, as you mass produce products, this isn't what you get at your local pizzeria. Remember, it's a frozen pizza, yeah. which Dave oftentimes reminds everybody that there is a pizza scale and then there's a frozen pizza scale. Yeah. Because in every, in every scenario, going to a John's of Bleecker, for example, which is one of Dave's favorite places, is going to be preferred over yeah. having a frozen pizza. However, <laughs> when it comes to frozen pizza, you still can create a really great product but the ability to mass produce, John's a bleaker can maybe make, I'm making up an example and I don't know for sure, 250 pizzas a night. 
for sure. We need to try to find ways to make a million pizzas a day. Yeah. And in order to do that, there needs to be some sort of standardization so that again, if you're buying our product in Bloomington, Indiana, or in New York City, it's the same product and the same experience and the same price. Yeah. And so we started with the crust options that we're able to produce. So number of different crusts. And we, you can work on structure, you can work on ingredients and flowers and things like that. But that's how we started to narrow down the crust choice. Mm. From once we select a crust choice, then we could start to work on the sauce. So a yeah. bunch of different sauces with different levels of sweetness versus spice on the same crust now. Crust is the is the control. Now we now we start to build. Now you pick a sauce. So once Dave was able to collaborate with our team, pick go from crust to sauce, we can then work on toppings. And ultimately that manifests itself into a finished product that Dave is superbly involved in shaping and creating. And it's been really cool because we created the best pizza out there. That's amazing. I love yeah. that. So hearing, being a follower of Dave's and following you lately, there has been much demand around this pizza when it launched in Walmart. And I'm curious, what did production look like trying to keep up with that demand? Was it pretty even? Um, look, it's still going, which is the, yeah. the optimal scenario for manufacturing on a mass scale. Yeah. Uh, part of the, the challenges in being a manufacturer to the retailers of the world is how do you measure demand? And oftentimes what you're seeing in terms of consumption on the shelf is real-time data, yeah. but you are to react to real-time data, you're already behind. And so you mm. have to be able to forecast out because there is a time lag between consumption and production. Yeah. And you have to produce four to eight weeks ahead of it getting to the shelf and ultimately to a consumer's home. Yeah. And so in the beginning, it becomes very difficult to measure. Now, the fortunate reality is that the pizza is a frozen pizza. And yeah. so you have a fresh shelf life of a long period of time. And so building an inventory stock is something that we can do. And that's yeah. kind of the way that we managed it. Now, as a business owner, you have to manage inventory because inventory is cash. Yeah. And sure. so managing the right level of inventory and not overburdening yourself with too much is the, that's the finesse aspect. And we have a great sure. team here at Happy Foodie that is measuring all of those things. We're looking at trends, we're looking at sales information, data, market information ahead of time to be able to say, okay, this is going to be our starting inventory position and mm -hmm. we're going to make adjustments along the way, hopefully producing more as consumption yeah. goes up. Um, but it's been an awesome experience and I'm very proud of our team. I'm grateful for our partnership with the Barstool team as we drive consumption and we keep up with keep up with production for sure it's very impressive with, with a vast amount of offerings today with happy foodie in general um breakfast yeah. lunch and dinner i'm curious if you have an idea of what the top seller might be disregarding any partnerships so with happy foodie like in the frozen area best seller are, are you saying which what's our best selling item for all of our brands all of our portfolio Exactly. If you have any idea, is it pizza category? Yeah. Is it pasta, et cetera? So the pizza is very, very new. Um, but for us at Happy Foodie, under the Happy Foodie brand, our Southwest Chicken Keto Bowl okay. and our Alfredo Chicken Keto Bowl are our best performing items. I mean, they're permissible. So we like to yeah. say that they're like indulgence without compromise because they yeah. taste amazing, but you stick to 
this lifestyle diet of very, very low carbs and actually low calories, but high in flavor. Mm. Um, when it comes to the pizza, pizza velocities are certainly higher than that of um, lifestyle diet products. For sure. We are still learning the consumption trends, but right now it looks like cheese pizza and pepperoni pizza are flying. Awesome. Um, and Dave, Dave's a cheese pizza guy, right? That's where yeah. you start. And then you can graduate into the pepperoni, the three meat and the supreme. But he always says you start with cheese to get a baseline of how good the pizza is. And mm. I think that a lot of uh, Dave's followers and the, the, the stoolies have been following <laughs> suit with that. Amazing. So I like to conclude each episode with this. If you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe something you've learned or regret, uh, what would that be? Well, it's no regrets, but start. Yeah, Just I get like that. going. And you're going to learn along the way. You're going to fall along the way. It's about getting up, pivoting, adjusting. Think about it. We started as a waffle business, and now we create all sorts of food products for all of the retailers. And so while you may have an initial plan, know that there are going to be opportunities and pivot points that you need to take advantage of. And as the last piece of advice is along that journey, it becomes an emotional roller coaster. You have opportunities that you capture that bring you to the highest of highs and you have challenges that bring you to the lowest of lows, powering through those and knowing that it should be like a trend. So there's ups and downs, but if your trend line is up, because of your perseverance and because you're going, I think it becomes all worth it. For sure. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining me. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Happy Foodie at happyfoodie.com. Yep, with an I. Thanks so much, Cameron. It's awesome, man. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.